Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast. This week's show is all about guns. You're going to learn a bit, I think, about gun policy, about gun violence issues, and that's because we have an incredible authority on these issues as our guest today. I want to welcome David Chipman, who is currently working for a group called Americans for Responsible Solutions. If you recognize that name, it's because it's a gun violence uh, prevention organization founded by former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and her husband, Mark Kelly. Uh, But before joining ARS, David Chipman spent 25 years at ATF, uh, where he was a federal law enforcement official that worked on everything from violent crime and uh, gang activity to investigating some of the most horrific acts of domestic terrorism that we've seen over the last uh, several decades. So welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to kind of pick up with this SHARE Act, the Republican Sportsman's Act that did pass out of committee and is pending on the House floor. Um, Could have been a strongly bipartisan bill because there's a lot of consensus around supporting wildlife refuges and wetlands restoration and habitat and helping hunters and fishermen have quality access and, and support. Uh, but we found all of these gun lobby provisions tucked into this bill. And I want to ask you about uh, some of them. One kind of comes under the pretext of protecting hunters from hearing loss. It's called the Hearing Protection Act. Uh, and it's all about making the world safe for silencers again, which have been very hard to get since the 1930s. Tell us about this silencer provision and, and why this would be such a, a huge and, and negative change for public policy. Sure. Well, actually, I'd have a slightly different view on silencers in that I don't believe it's as hard to get a silencer today as some might think. Um, But that being said, uh, it is absolutely true that a silencer and a gun gives a tactical advantage to the shooter. So when a person like a member of SEAL Team 6 has it and we want them to go hunt down bin Laden, it's a very effective tool for the good guys. The problem is, is that that gets in the hands of someone who's meant to murder someone, assassinate, ambush a cop. It can be really deadly. And that's why in the 1930s it was decided that, yes, Americans could buy these, but there needed to be some ironclad um, regulations. One was you'd have to pass a background check. Mm-hmm. Two, the item would have to have a serial number and it'd have to be registered in your name. So you'd be responsible for it. And as a result of this um, regulatory structure, when I was on the street on ATF SWAT team and through the the various positions in my 25 years, uh, we rarely found uh, silencers being used in crime. And it was because criminals didn't want to take the risk. And if they got caught, they were going to go to federal prison for a long time. Um, So for me, um, you know, one of the things I learned at ATF is I think all laws are well-intentioned, but some really work well and some sort of fall short or have unintended consequences. The National Firearms Act, where silencers, machine guns, and other very lethal weapons went in the wrong hands, uh, uh, that regulatory structure, I believe, is one of the um, 
most important gun violence prevention laws in our nation's history. It's been there, it's worked for 80 years, um, and that's why it's so shocking uh, to see this attempt to start to undermine that effectiveness for really the only reason I can see is to boost profits uh, of an industry. Um, again, I've worked in the private sector. Businesses need to make money. That creates jobs. I'm just more used to there being an appropriate balance in that nothing that we do to make money makes people's lives less safe, uh, and particularly those uh, men and women in blue are trying to protect us. So we'll come back to the industry and the money-making side okay. of some of these policies uh, in a moment. But uh, bottom line is you think, you think the silencer... Uh, regulations uh, need to be held on to. They've worked. I do because the the presentation that I've seen is that people are arguing that the need for silencers has to do with it's a, an appropriate form of hearing protection. I know that when I was an ATF special agent our tax dollars were used to keep me as safe as absolutely possible mm -hmm. and if there was a piece of safety equipment that would keep me safe and get me home at night I would have not just one of them I'd have three or four in different colors. There's other ways yeah. to protect your hearing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, our regulations required that when I practice with all of my firearms I had to have earplugs the same that any spouse would buy to deter or quiet their uh, spouse's uh, snoring at night. <laughs> Um, and I'd also have earmuffs uh, that I would use in conjunction. And that combination of protection of the ear, which is what your hearing protection is, is what we were mandated to do and has worked. I, I know of no law enforcement agency in this country that has sought the use of silencers as an effective means to protect people's hearing. Um, I'm often given the scenario by people who advocate for this law, well, what if you're on an island and you forgot your hearing protection, would you want a silencer? Oh, <laughs> under those conditions, clearly a silencer makes a gun quieter. It could not be called a silencer. So I'll give them that part of the argument. All I'm saying is that even if I was firing a silenced gun, which I have, yeah. um, I always wore my hearing protection. All right. So you don't think this is about hearing protection at all? You think it's a pretext? No, I, I think, in no disrespect to you, a congressman, I find that sometimes bills today are named in a way that couldn't be farther from the true intent of the Shocking. Yeah, so I know this is a shocking yes. revelation on this podcast here and here. <laughs> but I, I do think that sometimes yeah. we name things and it really has nothing to do with the name. And, that's, and this is one of those examples. And I think why it's been put in the SHARE Act, what was formerly the Hearing Protection Act, is that this bill could not stand on its own, so it had to be hidden somewhere else. Well, euphemistic uh, names for bills are alive and well uh, here in this Congress. Let's, have, let's go to another provision, a concealed carry reciprocity. This would uh, require every state to accept the permits of the other 49, regardless of any state's laws. Um, I know law enforcement has come out against this over and over again, but we still see it pushed uh, over and over here in Congress. Why is this a big deal? Yeah, so I think right now we're fortunate because um, although there's been a lot of debate about how the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act um, will be um, examined by the Congress, um, and there's been a lot of uh, you know rumor and talk, it hasn't quite yet been put into the SHARE Act, but it has. A, there is a bill out there, um, and it's of great concern. Um, what the Concealed Carry Reciprocity um, Bill does is it sets a standard that if you can carry a concealed gun in your state, you can then lawfully, then you can carry it everywhere in America uh, based on that, um, that 
being allowed in your own state. And this, this sets up a real interesting dynamic for law enforcement. Um, at ATF, I worked in many places across the country, and I think we can all agree that part of the beauty of the United States is that Americans are different in different places, and what's typical and normal and good for public safety in different places is yeah. different. And so there are at least 12 states now that if you're just an upstanding citizen in that state, you can carry a concealed gun without any other uh, government action. It's just mm -hmm. sort of like one of your rights on the list of rights you get to exercise. You don't even need a special permit? There's nothing. No you just, if you're not a criminal, or, yeah. you can carry the gun concealed. You can do that at the age of 18 in many of these states. Now, we know that in other states that have a lot of urban centers and are, right. and are concerned about um, crime, uh, that there are limitations that you can't carry or possess a handgun until the age of 21. Right. In fact, under federal law, you can't buy a handgun from a gun dealer until 21. And so this law would allow 18-year-olds never, who have never passed a background check, who've never demonstrated that they have had any training whatsoever, they could get on a bus for their high school trip and go into New York City and carry concealed in a place where they couldn't even lawfully before carry the or own the gun. Wow. And so like... Um, it's kind of a race to the bottom, isn't it? It's basically requiring every state to conform to the lowest standard of the, the least protective state in America. Yeah, and I, I don't, you know, I'm not a, a political theorist, but it is, I, I know the concept of states' rights, and I know mm -hmm. what parties have been really concerned about this. This yeah. would be a bill that is absolutely against states' rights and the ability for people in Arizona, people in California, people in Montana to decide what's best for their country when it comes to something that's you know really impactful of their public safety. More shocking cynicism you're suggesting my Republican colleagues might not really believe in states' rights all the time. Um, I think that in this case, um, they're really flying in the face of the police who typically are used to at least being consulted on bills. And so we have law enforcement from states as liberal as Montana, who are very concerned that they're very comfortable with their concealed carry laws, many of them which require training. Um, I think that that's one of the things we try to do at ARS. I think that's one of the things that I was hired for is to try to talk about the importance of gun responsibility from people who depended on guns their whole career. Mm -hmm. I am not anti-gun. I, I carried a gun every day for 25 years and it helped me keep me safe. But the premise of that safety was all around the fact that I trained regularly and heavily and I knew when and when not to use a gun. I never thought that they could just hand me a piece of equipment and I'd somehow save the day. And that's sort of the culture out there today is just go to your gun store, buy a gun and you're ready to go and you're gonna be a hero. That's gonna get you dead and a bunch of other people hurt. Wow. Let's talk about armor-piercing bullets. Okay. Another provision in the SHARE Act. Um, basically prohibits the federal government from reclassifying any ammunition, any ammunition as armor-piercing. Why is this a problem? And I will just tell you that I've heard from some hunters in, in my district that, uh, look, a lot of 30-06 uh, bullets and other bullets used in deer hunting, you know, could theoretically pierce armor. So, you know, you wouldn't want that to be classified as armor-piercing and somehow have hunters be deprived of the ammo that they need. Does that hold up? Yeah, so th this is one of those arguments that I really, to me it comes around uh, an issue of convenience. Um, you know, I, I think um, I often hear um, from people who are 
concerned about their rights. They use words like hassle or it's a pain in the butt or these types of things. Like, I just want people to know, like, when you're on a SWAT team and you wake up at 6 a.m. and your duty for this country is to go in there and arrest someone who has a gun and your main concern is not getting your head blown off, mm-hmm. like, that's inconvenient. Like, 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 so let's, let, let's compare this. So what I don't like about this part of the law is not that people are concerned that they want to be able to hunt in states that have regulated the use of lead and hunting. Like, I get that. Yeah. But let's have a conversation about, like, how can we do this in a way that lets police do what they want to do safely? That, I think that that's the key. And that's, it, it, it's provisions in this law that seem to take an absolutist view and sort of diminish or just dismiss that there might be some downside to public safety. And so rounds that can defeat ballistic vests that uh, law enforcement rely on, um, rounds that can penetrate vehicles, um, rounds that can fit in handguns that are easily concealable and do this. I mean, this is the type of firearm that um, a uh, mass shooter at Fort Hood used. Um, we have firearms that are not your grandfather's hunting rifles anymore. These are weapons of war that were designed for militaries that are now in the private market. The same has happened with ammunition. And this bill sort of tries to cut off like a reasonable conversation about how we regulate an item that will be absolutely deadly in the wrong hands, but might have some legitimate use in the use by hunters. Mm-hmm. But there's no room for conversation. They're just saying no. Uh, the government no can never take regulation. All. Yeah, right. That is the problem. So, uh, in Congress, all of the action has been towards relaxing gun violence and gun safety standards uh, in recent years. But at the state level, we actually have seen some higher standards imposed. We also have a checkerboard of, of wildly varying policies among the 50 states. Uh, what does that mean uh, for? the gun violence uh, problem that we face around the country when you have so much uh, so much difference between these state standards. Yeah, I, I want to recognize what, you know, I love this country and I've had an opportunity to work in different parts of this country. Um, what would be normal, acceptable, and make sense in rural Texas mm-hmm. um, is probably quite different from where I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. Um, we're all Americans, but they're different norms. Uh, And so I want to give the freedom to have localities sort of figure out things that make sense with them, and in particular with guns, because we have a culture with guns that we just have to recognize. That being said, um, some of the choices we make locally impact people nationally. You wouldn't want someone to pollute a river in your state that then you can't drink in the other state, okay? So firearms trafficking is the same thing. If I allow people without background checks to amass numerous guns, but those guns aren't impacting people in that state, but they go to another city and cause crime, I would hope as Americans that either, even though it's not impacting me in my locality, that it's hurting other Americans, I should be concerned. And so when it comes to things like 
people traveling with guns untrained across America, people able to buy guns without background checks and then traffic them to other states, people being able to now for the first time potentially buy silencers on the internet and then trafficking them into yeah. states that have chosen to ban them, that's where I have a real problem. And that's where I become, you know, I'm very passionate about these laws, which I enforced at the federal level, that attempt to make this country safe for everyone. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I, I agree with your with that being included in the definition of Americans, although I think uh, I think we're having a bit of a national debate about whether that should be part of yep. uh, of this country right now. Uh, and I'm on your side for sure. So let's, on gun trafficking and uh, ammunition and silencer trafficking, uh, there's also a provision in the SHARE Act that might really make the world safe for trafficking because it would, uh, it would impose personal liability for law enforcement agents who used out-of-state license plates and other things that sometimes trigger uh, their scrutiny uh, if, if they did that to try to find a silencer or find gun trafficking. Talk about that provision. Yeah, so the difficulty is, is there's no firearms trafficking statute under federal law. Um, if there was, it'd be easier for agents like myself and their state and local par partners to prevent this interstate black market uh, of guns. Um, this bill would, if passed, hinder law enforcement who typically tries to work around the lack of this law by asking questions. You know, if you had had Mark Kelly in here, he'd talk about space. Being a cop is not like putting someone on Mars. It's just doing regular things, asking questions, and from once in a while sort of being brave in the face of danger. And so a lot of times, modest, uh, they, uh, I, I don't want to overplay this. I mean, <laughs> if you roll into a store and you buy 10 of the identical gun and you have out-of-state tags, like this is a clue. This isn't as complex a clue as you see on TV, but it's a clue most mm -hmm. agents recognize. And so if this person actually starts leaving the state, you kind of want to pull that car over and say, hey, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what are you doing with all these guns? Most people don't buy 10 of the same gun. That's not typical. Yeah. This law, if this person had these guns in the car and they had trigger locks with them, which most guns are sold now, the way I read that is I could be sued for asking a question that I think everyone would want their cops to ask. And so what I find like extraordinary in this law is that, and I have not seen it very often, is, is language that allows someone to sue me, David Chipman, for yeah. doing my job. Typically, if you're a cop, and you, someone questions that you aren't doing something according to policy, they can sue your department. And clearly any cop who breaks the law right. should go to jail. Right. So that's already in place. This is sort of like, well, no, we want you to be on your heels. We don't want you to look into this. And that only protects gun traffickers. Yeah. That's so it. So that's just having a chilling effect on any kind of attempt to investigate or enforce Right. I mean, we already see this laws. where sometimes the reaction of cops, it's part of the culture, is like, oh, you don't want me to ever make a mistake? Well, I'll sit in my car. Like, and I don't think every cop does this, thank God, but like that kind of when you can see in writing, like, I'm going to have to buy personal insurance right. because someone can just, uh, you know, sue me for pulling them over and asking, why'd you just buy 20 guns? Well, you wonder about the intent of a provision like this. Why would, some, why would my Republican colleagues put a provision like this into a sportsman's bill? Um, I and don't... you go back to your inconvenience. Well, well gosh, maybe a hunter without a state plates might be inconvenienced. Yeah. So... I, 
versus let, let me maybe be clear. we stop trafficking. Yeah. Let, let, let me be clear. Like, I, I don't want to be here and comment on what every member of Congress and get in their head and know why they're doing it. I know why the people who push to people who write these bills with prior language are trying to do. And that is, is like, if you are no longer selling a lot of guns to sportsmen and hunters, and your primary business model is you need guns for public safety, well, then you need an unsafe society to need to buy a gun. And so there is no, if your business model depends entirely on people feeling unsafe and scared and need to buy a gun, why would you want to do anything that makes things safer? And now we're getting into the business model and the big money uh, behind the gun lobby. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it, that gun sales soared under President Barack Obama, who the NRA constantly wanted people to believe was about to take your guns away. Right. Um, certainly wanted them to believe that Hillary was somehow going to take everybody's guns away. But here you have Donald Trump, first president to directly address the NRA since 1983, one of the most pro-gun congresses anyone could ever dream up, and gun sales are tanking. The industry is withering. So uh, talk about that paradox and maybe whether it explains bills like the one we're seeing move through the House of Representatives to try to uh, promote you know, in a disingenuous way, but basically promote trafficking and new types of um, violent uh, gun technology. Yeah, so anyone who's a peer of mine and over 50 has to first come to grips with the fact that the NRA that we knew as young men and women is not the NRA today. The NRA I knew when I first worked at ATF was an organization that was really good at training people. Uh, they were good at marksmanship programs. And it was something that I really felt that they were people who liked guns, liked sportsmanship, and had you know good intentions. The leadership of the NRA of yeah, when I grew up, today. it was like about hunter safety for right. the most part. And right, what? and that makes sense. I mean, how can you be against hunter safety? Yeah. I mean, it made sense. I grew up in Michigan, and all my friends hunted. Like, I, I get this. But I think that something has changed. I mean, right now, one of the things that the, the, the gun lobby uh, is trying to do is to pass bills in states that would allow people to carry guns absent training. Like, I guess training people is no longer part of their business model. If it was, you'd mandate training because all these people could get money training people. Right. Like, so to me, they're, they're trying to market something else. And that marketing to me surrounds fear. It's a very, very shallow, I think short time, I think un-American business model, but we have to accept that it works. Sometimes you do things not because they make sense, but because you're scared. Do you know, has, has the uh, makeup of the NRA itself changed? I mean, has it gone from like a membership organization driven from the I, grassroots to I think the leadership industry? has changed. All the polling mm -hmm. that we do, and we're I, pollers are able to like interview mm -hmm. and, and, and poll NRA members. Most NRA members uh, believe what we believe. They want to be able to buy the gun that they want. They're not, you know, passing a background check, of course, um, some training that makes sense to them. And so what we have is a leadership that has become much more political. Uh, we saw this in the campaign. We see the types of videos they put out, which really today don't have that much to do about guns. They have to do about culture. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things, um, you know, Mark Kelly uh, especially uh, tries to encourage me to talk about, both his parents are cops. 
Like we, we are law enforcement. We actually served our nation. You know, Mark was flying combat missions and got on a rocket and went into yeah, space. Yeah. You know, I did for a time. I was a SWAT guy. Like we've actually served this country. And now we have people who have never served trying to corner what a patriot means. Yeah. And I reject that. Good for you. Yeah. That's great. And meanwhile, with gun sales in the toilet, uh, it's time to make people really afraid. Uh, yeah through some of these advertisements and to get some new products out there yeah. in circulation. You need to create new business verticals. And yeah. so a new business vertical is selling silencers. That would be good for the business because mo of the 300 million guns uh, to uh, attach a silencer to it, uh, the easiest way would to be replace the ba barrels of these guns. That's, that's mm -hmm. something that you can sell. Um, when you're getting more people to can carry concealed guns, but Maybe you want to have a different gun that you would carry concealed. And they're having fashion shows where they're selling new clothing lines with Velcro and stuff like that. So that's all very profitable. If you know anyone who runs a gun show, uh, store, and I know many of these people because I was part of the you know, ATF who regulated them, the markup on a gun is very small. They're not making their money from selling guns. The gun manufacturers are. But the frontline dealers are making money from selling ammo and selling all these products. And so it, it just makes sense that you're always looking for other ways to monetize Change your up. injury. All right, so let's talk about Americans for Responsible Solutions, your organization founded by Gabby Giffords and Mark Kelly, who you just mentioned. Um, tell us about the, I think most people remember uh, the tragedy with Gabby Giffords in, in Arizona, but uh, tell us about the organization and what you're trying to do. Yeah, so I think what we're trying to do is uh, talk as gun owners, people who had guns, about the fact that we can have a conversation and not be anti-gun, but be pro-America and pro-public safety yeah. by talking about reasonable stuff. I mean, Do you when, find you have to begin every conversation with like, I have guns and I've shot a gun and I'm not against all guns? Because unless I, you say all the usual stipulations, the gun advocates will say you're not allowed to be part of the conversation. Yeah, so I do believe that you have to demonstrate that you know something about guns. Being an ATF agent on the SWAT team, you can do that. When I talk about Mark Kelly, um, he flew jets and fired weapons and, uh, you know, his, both his parents are cops. Um, Gabby has a naval warship named after her. I mean, this is not, we are not a typical ban. We have a, a veterans coalition of generals like Petraeus and McChrystal mm -hmm. who support us. Uh, some of the largest law enforcement names in the country are with us. And you're not trying to take away every handgun in America or uh, repeal the Second Amendment? No. I, it, it, actually, I'm such a pragmatist. If I thought that that would somehow make our country safer, I might advocate for it. <laughs> I don't believe that. I, I think what has worked is, is that when we have reasonable regulations, um, uh, America gets safer. I think that there are a lot of complex dynamics to gun violence. There are mass shootings, there's domestic violence, there's suicide, there's uh, street crime. There, there are a whole lot of different things and we need to do different things to impact uh, those levels of violence. But I know for 25 years I could see that certain things I was doing as an agent worked. I saw cities get safer and I saw places where we were doing things that didn't work, they got more dangerous. So I'm very uh, a big believer that we can uh, uh, help make this problem um, less severe. 
Um, but the answer isn't like, oh, we can't do anything. Uh, everyone needs to carry a gun. And like, I don't want that for my family. More uh, guns is the only answer. It, to, well, it yeah. isn't. It, it, it clearly isn't the only answer. Um, I do believe, though, that Americans have the right to approach problems in a way that respects their independence, but it isn't absence the responsibility that those choices might impact others. And that to me is like, the only place we don't have conversations like that is in this city. Like yeah. if I'm at, over at someone's house for dinner, like everyone agrees that there's always this balance. It's here where there's just, right. we're in extreme corners and no one's really talking about the things that are important. Right. Because really those are hard. These are hard conversations. You, you've come back a number of times to this, uh, to this trade-off between individual liberty at the expense of the community and social responsibility. And, you're absolutely right. That is, there, that is a friction point uh, right now in this Congress, in this country. So um, can we go to some questions that we've gotten online? Yes. Uh, my team uh, put out on social media that we were going to be having this conversation, and so I had a few constituents suggest questions. The first one comes from Victoria, who asks, why hasn't the gun industry embraced uh, certain technologies to reduce gun violence and accidents, things like uh, fingerprint uh, technology? Right. I mean, it is really a great question because uh, most technologies in the United States, and we see this in Silicon Valley, they always want to make, um, you know, 2.0, 3 4.0 something. And really guns today are pretty much manufactured the same as they've always been. But um, this would sell more guns. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't we yeah. want smart guns instead yeah. of dumb guns? Like, it really is like, why do we even have to have this question? I think that um, this is an example of where... People who are concerned about gun violence uh, made an unintended mistake. I think Americans like to choose safety and they like to choose technology. They don't want it mandated against them. And so I think there was an effort to mandate the use of these types of things. And I think that backfired against the sensibilities of certain people. I know now in the community, we want to do, I'm from Detroit, we want to do what the auto industry did. Auto industry made safety cool. Mm -hmm. Like that Volvo was, I think, the first company yeah. to do that. And I think that my sense of Americans is like they like to make choices for themselves. And I think that if safety becomes cool, people would be more willing to embrace it. And so I think right now we're seeing more companies who are creating, um, I think it'll start with safe storage. I think okay. people will get to trust the fingerprint type things and uh, the things that use other technologies. You know, does it work when I'm just trying to holster the gun? Or does it work on my safe? Right. Or, and I think when people get um, faith in that, you know, we now unlock our phones that way, I think then you will find that, well, why don't I have it built into my gun? But right, right. now for law enforcement, the biggest threat that we see is guns being stolen from cars. Okay. Now that more people are carrying guns out of the home, they often just throw the gun on the floorboard of their car, which is reckless yeah. and irresponsible, and then criminals steal it. Right. What now I'd like to see you know, someone in the auto industry step up and create you know, safe ways to store a gun in the car. Now, I'll be honest with you. There's some people uh, well, in the gun... I think that's how the gun came to be used against Kate Steinle in San Francisco. My, right? uh, my former boss at ATF, he retired and he was murdered walking his dog with a gun that was stolen two blocks away from a car. So this is a right. real thing that happens. I think, though, that there is this you know, friction, even with the gun violence prevention movement, of people who don't want to normalize guns being carried around in cars. I'm more of a pragmatist, and I'm like... 
it's already there. The horse is out of the barn, you know. Perhaps, you know, it would have been a, a nicer world if that wasn't the case, but this is our world, and I want to prevent guns from getting stolen, and so I think we need to make it easy for people to do the right thing. So that would disable a gun that a thief tried to use without... Well, actually, I don't even think you need to disable it. I think you just need to actually secure it better. I know as an agent, we had mechanisms in our car that it would have taken a blowtorch in four hours to get the car okay. out. Like, that's, like, I so think... You don't need all, to go all the way to fingerprint recognition. I, I don't... I, this is a place to start. Like, yeah. for me, if I... On my gun, I'd like that, all that gadgets. I always get the new phone. Like, I'd like it. I think there are people out there who would like it. But I think there are other people who are like... I don't want to have to have that gun. Yeah. Like, I want to be able to pick the dumb gun. Yeah. You know, because I'm a well, throwback. Maybe some people, like, I don't want to even take any chance that it won't fire when I need it to fire. Yeah, well, as, like a, well as a law enforcement my person. smudged or... Yeah, as a law enforcement yeah. person, I get that. I mean, I, when I first got on the job, I carried a revolver. There were people who didn't want pistols. Pistols jam. You know, we yeah. can't, we got to trust the revolver. I mean, this is always, there's been resistance to technology. Yeah. And so, like, I think that we will have smart guns someday, and it will be because the technology is reliable, and the people using them want them because they perceive them to be better. Okay. So the next question is Christina, who asks about uh, the federal freeze on research regarding gun violence. Uh, why is this such a big deal? And if we could actually... Do, get the data and do the studies, uh, how might we approach this issue differently? This is one of the primary reasons I retired early from ATF. When you're a federal agent, um, you can retire after 25 years. Uh, I was 46 at the time, or you could go to the age of 57. So I had a baked in job, mm -hmm. government job, good job. And it was the fact that there had been restrictions on the information we had that we could not give to the public and this was information I knew would hurt none of our cases, but would allow the public to know the true nature of gun violence that I saw in my everyday efforts. And to me, that was absolutely un-American. I was uncomfortable with it. My belief is, is that we allow the facts to go out, as long as they don't hurt you know, cases or national security, let the facts go out. And then we have a, a debate over those facts. I mean, that's how America's supposed to work. People might say, well, that doesn't mean this, it means this, but get the information out. I saw that there was a tendency to try to hold back the inconvenient truth mm -hmm. that our gun laws were making our country less safe. And that's one of the primary reasons that I retired because I wanted to talk about this in a way that wouldn't end up sending me to jail. Mm -hmm. Because when you're, you know, you are, you can't talk. Really, as a, as a no, federal agent, you, you cannot talk. You have no opinion. You just do your job, yeah. and like I, I get the chain of command, but I always, I swore an oath to our country, not to, not telling the truth about things that would embarrass certain industries. Yeah, does that make sense? So, like, well, these days in this administration, federal employees just run to the media and leak everything because they're so appalled at what's going on. But uh, you're, you're old school. I'm old You're, school. Yeah. Yeah, I'm old school. So uh, I, yeah. I'm glad you uh, are liberated from that. Yeah, so the research the thing is, is like, I think we want, um, I think we as a profession in policing, uh, we want to make sure that we're, uh, we have outcome measures that make sense. 
Uh, we want to make sure that what we're doing makes the community uh, more safe. I mean, one of the things that I created at ATF was a violent crime impact team. And the whole premise was, is we were going to rate the, uh, the results of this team not on how many people we arrested, not on how many guns we seized, but if homicides with a gun went down in the area we, we worked on. Mm -hmm. what, doesn't, isn't that the scoreboard we should sense. be using? Right? You kind of need data to do that. Right. We do yeah. need data, right? And we need researchers who independently keep score. Right. Because like, if I'm keeping score for me, I'm always winning, right? Like, I mean, this right. is not the American way. So research, what it does is it allows people to dispassionately look at what's really gone and make sure that what we intend to do is really happening. And so when you shut down research... Yeah. Kind of shocking that people are afraid to get the shocking. answers to these questions. Well, it's because they know what the answer is yeah. and they don't want to hear it because it would impact their business. Yeah, there we go again, back to the business. I'm, I'm afraid you're right. So what about... Uh, the flow of firearms from the U.S. to Mexico. I've got a, a question from Carol here. What can be done about this? Uh, do, you, do you know anything about that? Sure. Um, so there, the flow of guns to Mexico. The flow. I actually know more about the flow of guns to Canada because I worked in Detroit. But just as we um, inside America domestically impact other states, uh, we impact other nations. And so, again, um, the choices that we are making as Americans and how we treat um, the ability to buy guns um, absolutely impacts our neighbors. And so what we see in Mexico, um, what we see in um, some of the southern cities like Toronto, is that those areas are being impacted by the fact that it's so easy to get firearms here and bring them out of this country. To me, uh, I've always told, like, gun laws don't work. If gun laws didn't work and it was easy to get a gun, a person who lived in New York City would not go all the way to Georgia to get one. Come on, it's just, yeah. Yeah. of course not, right? Yeah. Like, so gun laws do work. What happens um, inadvertently or inappropriately is when there are loopholes in the law that don't work. And the biggest one that you know we're still up against is the fact that if I go to a gun store right. and buy a gun, I have to pass a background check. But if I don't want to do that, I go on the internet and buy the same thing without one. That's crazy. Yeah. California's got a pretty rigorous they do. background check system. They do, and other states do. And I think that when you examine the states, mm -hmm. um, some of the reason why fewer cops are killed in certain states is linked to the fact that they're background checks. It's I think that um, there are like about 50% fewer police killed with a gun in states that have background checks for every handgun sale. Yeah. Like to me, that's that inconvenience place. If I ask anyone, like anywhere, would you mind filling out a form that takes you about as long as buying a cup of coffee and you, because of that, some cop four weeks from now isn't going to get shot in the dead head? Would you do that for your cop? So I, I'm sick Any of regular that, person would say, of course, but the gun industry right. would say, no, no. Yeah. Well, because they want to make, so they want to, they want to say again. Yeah. Our amendments are rights with responsibilities. There's nothing in the Second Amendment who says like I can't have to fill out some paperwork. Even our Supreme Court has said it. It's the same with the First Amendment. Of course, you know? permits for protests, etc. Well, this is great. In fact, you just answered the final question I was going to ask from Edward here about. Um, gun control laws that you have seen that have actually reduced gun violence, obviously background checks. Background checks. Would be. Things that require someone to 
take responsibility for the item, um, the National Firearms Act. The reason the National Firearms Act works, I think, it's a balance between you can buy whatever gun you want. These are serious things. But in balance with that, you, you're going to have to be responsible for it. And the big fear that people put out there is, oh, if a gun's registered with the government, they will sneak in in their black helicopters and take it. Machine guns, silencers have been registered since the 1930s, and in my 25 years, I never got in that black helicopter and I never seized the gun inappropriately. It's a myth, it's a lie, and the reality is, is that the reason people don't rob banks in their own car is because that car will come back mm -hmm. to them. Why you don't see drug dealers put a business card in their baggie, this just makes common sense. I want Americans to be able to buy the firearms that they choose as family, uh, as a family, as a sport, whatever, but I want them to be responsible for because we know that there are unintended consequences when they get in the wrong hands. Great. Really appreciate your expertise and I'm so glad that you are a full-time advocate for gun violence prevention. You're doing great work and uh, you, were, uh, you were a star witness certainly in our committee a couple weeks ago. I wish you and your organization the best. Well thanks for having me here today. All right. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.